0: Um, Today I'm speaking with Dr. Pankaj Jain from University of North Texas on his new book, Dharma in America. Hello, Pankaj. How are you doing?
1: Hello, Raj. It's good to hear your voice and good to connect finally. Yes, it's good to
0: connect. Um, uh, uh, These... Interviews (laughs) Interviews, <laughs> or have been done remotely on on Skype or Zoom uh, for as long as I've been doing them. So thankfully, they're immune to the effects of COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. So, so we're good to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so Darwin America. Uh, what is what is the main objective of your book?
1: Uh, idea came to me uh, about uh, I think a couple of years, three years, three four years back when I was reading a. I came across a book called. Uh, Muslims and Making of America by Professor Amir Hussain at LMU Los Angeles. And he begins the book uh, very provocative, pro- provocatively, that, saying that um, there was never an America without Muslims. <laughs> that was a really striking line to begin a book. And uh, we, at least I do not uh, imagine uh, that America always had Muslims since its inception that was very uh, interesting and and then i began to as i began reading as i finished reading that book i thought of writing a similar book and uh, maybe explore how hindus or indian um, indians in general from uh, people from india how if any uh, have been their contributions in so called making of america uh, so and then uh, when i uh, began thinking. I thought that uh, I think I should uh, this this timeline should begin with uh, not just United States of America, but also with uh, Caribbean countries, uh, Suriname, Trinidad, uh, and other uh, Central American countries where Indians arrived as you know as indentured laborers uh, more than 150 years ago. So that's how I began uh, envisioning this book, and uh, so so my. My humble attempt is to, I guess, uh, re-share or re- remind uh, some of the readers that uh, that even Hindus have been uh, here for a, like, quite long time, not just uh, in the last 20, 30 years, but uh, people have been coming to the, this part of the world for, for more than almost like two two centuries now.
2: Yeah.
1: That's where I think. yeah. So uh,
0: your book essentially establishes um, the uh, overall sweeping contribution of um, individuals uh, from South Asian descent, yeah. um, really across continental America, the United States of America, Canada, where I um, live and work currently, um, uh, the West Indies uh off of the coast of uh south america so really you know the, there is this this broader sweep that you are that you are um that you're discussing and and yet there's a very specific focus uh towards america as in the united States of america would you say so
1: it's, so I, it's a it's a book that uh that takes a historical approach, but it also takes a kind of an anthropological approach and uh, and I especially look at the areas where uh, Indians or Hindus in general or Indian Americans in general have contributed, but they have not been noticed in academic books such as uh, there are many diaspora books where Hindu temples, Hindu gurus, meditation movements are celebrated are, are mentioned, described, researched. Uh, but uh, I didn't come across a diaspora, diaspora studies book where uh, similar contributions in food industry, for example, healthcare industries, classical music, uh, or even contributions or lives of Jains or Jain temples across North America. Uh, I did not come across a book so far where Jains have been uh, described in detail how Jains arrived here and how they... Have continued to thrive in this uh, part of the world, uh, and then civic engagement. So, for example, Indian Americans and how those uh, how they are trying to. Uh, so, when we think of Indian American and politics or civic engagement, we probably think of uh, Nikki Haley as the ex governor of South Carolina or Bobby Jindal as ex uh, governor of uh, Louisiana. But uh, but uh, Indian Americans are also trying to break, uh, trying to enter you know, school politics or city council politics. So based on my own auto autoethnography, if you could call it, uh, I share some of my own experiences in, uh, in school, uh, public school system here in Dallas area. So, so the book is trying to weave a pattern of uh, less commonly areas where Indian Americans have been working or trying to contribute in their own humble ways. Not so often. Well, but, yeah. well there's, a number of,
0: of, there's a number of threads in your book, um, and I think we should touch on them individually. For example, we'll touch on the uh, Indian contribution towards medicine as well as to, towards music. Um, and we'll also, of course, touch on your own, um, your own personal experiences uh, with the system uh, in the States. Um, maybe a good idea might be to go chapter by chapter. So, um, in the first chapter you basically explain how you uh, the, sort of the genesis of this book in terms of in terms of drawing on Amir Hussein's uh, um, insightful and provocative statement about Muslims mm-hmm. being foundational to America. Um, I actually had the good fortune of working with him when he was um, uh, he was the editor of the of the Jar of the Journal. Oh, yes. the American Academy of Religion, uh, I think yeah. in 2012. I was lucky enough to have something published there uh, in my grad school days. So, um, yeah, so he's no slouch, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, so uh, beyond chapter one, where you talk about the Genesis, let's focus on chapter two then. It's uh, along the lines of before coolies. What do you talk about in chapter two? uh,
1: uh yeah, so chapter two is where it all begins, right? The indentured laborers start coming in, uh, thanks to the British Raj, who brought these people all the way from mostly from North India, but also some parts of South India, uh, UP, Bihar, and also Andhra and Tamil Nadu. And uh, uh, what uh, you know, tracing some history from Columbus, uh, how what he how he was lured by India, but he came to West Indies and Bahri, uh, uh uh, west indies part uh, parts of uh, parts of the islands of west indies or Caribbean countries and then how uh, so during that research, I was really struck how the you know first Hindu temple was built in that part of the part of uh, western hemisphere not in north America not in uh, so, so just a,
0: just a quick quick, quick <laughs> moment to to contextualize for our our audience you are referring uh Uh, to the Caribbean to what's called the West Indies yes this is just to give them a sense of where you're talking about in America now
1: yeah I think Bahamas and uh, Trinidad and Suriname and all of those countries are I think included in when we say Caribbean countries right Jamaica and and
0: yeah sure and uh, please go on so regarding regarding um, migration and indentured labor uh, labor ship in that part of the world please continue
1: so really uh, i was fascinated by as i kept discovering it was a relatively new area of my research my earlier books have been on environmental studies but this was really interesting to uh, to to find out and to share with with readers that uh, that uh, suriname uh, was once <laughs> ruled by the netherlands and as it gained its independence uh, hindus uh, from suriname migrated to the netherlands and to the best of my knowledge that i figured out i think they uh, some of them are still in the netherlands but and yet not fully integrated and uh, they you know thousands of those hindus from suriname they uh, are uh, treated like a minority or you know separate ghetto within the netherlands that was really interesting uh, in trinidad they have been more successful within trinidad trinidad itself in uh, you know, making really huge contributions. For example, uh, in Di- uh, Diwali being the largest or most important festival of Hindus across the world, Trinidad probably is the f- one of the first countries in this part of the world, in Western Hemisphere, where Diwali is now a national holiday. <laughs> I was really, uh, that was a, a very interesting to find out. And that uh, became an impetus for, us here in Texas, Dallas area, to request for a similar holiday in local schools in, in Dallas area, where now 60% of all students in in my own school district, where my kids go to schools, 60% of those have Hindu or Indian or South Asian heritage. So at researching with about Trinidad gave us an idea to request for a similar holiday in Dallas. Of course, we didn't succeed uh, based on many uh, arguments that it's a separation of church and state thing and so on. But but then we ask, why is is Christmas a national holiday? Uh, (laughs) And why is Easter, uh, I'm sorry, Good Friday, a state holiday, unofficially, but it is a state holiday. All schools are closed in Texas. Uh, but when we ask for Diwali, even with 60% Hindus in schools and in California, there are many school dis- systems where 75% of kids are of that heritage and yet there is no Diwali quality. Anyway, so I just, uh, those all ideas are so intermeshed and intertwined that uh, researching and activism and teaching and all of those things are kind of uh, became intertwined more and more. Uh, so going back to Trinidad, so yeah, so Trinidad is, I think, uh, where Hindus have been, you know, a bit more assertive in uh, in making sure that they are treated uh, equally with other with their other counterparts. Uh, Suriname uh, also was interesting in other ways uh, when I learned that uh, by this migration of Hindus from North India to Suriname, a new dialect of Hindi has developed in Suriname, which is called as Sarnami. I guess Suriname and Suriname. so that's a very interesting dialect, and I would love to uh, personally visit uh, uh, once uh, to that part of the world and see how you know how it is different from India. I'm not yet sure. Uh, so, uh, so, so Suriname, Trinidad, uh, similarly Jamaica, and uh, uh, you know, so these are uh, parts. Some of these countries are part of South America, not just North or Central America, but actual South America where there are Hindus living for more than a century almost 150 years so that's not I think those who are in diaspora studies uh, I think are I, I'm sure they're well versed with these 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 facts but some of us who are kind of new to diaspora studies at least I was before I started writing that chapter it was really interesting to to discover all those uh, all that information uh, then um, and I think uh, I think you have some connection also that with that part of the world I'm not not yet sure. Maybe you can share later. But I I discovered that many of the those Hindus or uh, of that heritage uh, people from uh, these countries uh, also migrated not just to the Netherlands as I alluded earlier, but they of course have also been migrated migrating to Canada and, and uh, United States. So so North America, and those are what are what are the issues of of Hindus uh, moving from Caribbean countries to North America and how they have. Kind of maintained a very interesting uh, dynamic with larger Indian American population. I know that, uh, for example, an organization called Hindu American Foundation uh, have has tried its best to integrate Hindus from Caribbean countries to be part of the global Hindu diaspora. But, uh, but in many instances, for example, in Dallas where I live for last a decade now, almost ten years now, uh, I, I was fascinated fascinated to find out that. Hindus from Caribbean countries uh, that have migrated in Dallas uh, have kept uh, their own separate temple, their own separate organization group, and they may not necessarily completely intermingle with Hindus that are coming from India. Very interesting. And uh, even the Indian government, I guess uh, very surprisingly, would gladly give the status of uh, OCI, Overseas Citizenship of India, gladly give to uh, people of Indian origin who are uh, in North America. But people in Suriname and Trinidad, I think, are still waiting to get that kind of status which gives lifelong visa to go back to India. That's such a, I think, uh, as I as I interviewed some of the Hindus from Trinidad in Dallas, they are still waiting to get the same privilege uh, to be able to get that freedom to go back to India, to visit India without visa for lifelong, uh, that lifelong freedom that we get with the OCI status. So interesting. Uh, comparative features, uh, as if we compare Hindus with uh, Hindus of Caribbean countries with Hindus of, of North America. So, those were some of the issues. And, so, uh, and then, ugliest the temple that was built was uh, I think Jamaica or Guiana, Gu- British Guiana, I think, where uh, more than hundred years ago uh, people have found a Hindu temple. So that was interesting. Uh, what else can I highlight in this okay. chapter? There are yeah. a number of there
0: are a number yeah. of fascinating issues that yeah. come up in this chapter, um, because uh, in many ways the there the, the in many ways there are phenomena that directly relates or pertains to individuals of um, South Asian descent who are engaged in Hindu practice, mm-hmm. um, living. On this broad continent, so there is this general sweeping uh, uh, parallel, and yet there's something uh, um, very different as well in terms of a swath of 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 citizens um, coming across 150 years ago, um, mostly through indentured um, labor contracts, and then having developed a nation that is relatively pluralistic, Mm. wherein people in the villages would partake in uh, Christmas, Eid, and Diwali, uh, Mm. in terms of communal festivity, but certainly uh, if if your neighbors are Muslims and and, um, they slaughter an animal for Eid, you'd partake in it, but you certainly wouldn't go to the mosque if you're Hindu and vice versa if you're Muslim living in the West Indies and your uh neighbors are sharing sweets for Diwali, mm-hmm. uh you may you may well accept and partake in it yet you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily um go to the temple type thing so th- so there's a there's a there's um there's a lot happening in the West Indies that um mm-hmm. i think helps your case. And there's a lot that really is a very, very different sort of sociocultural texture. Um, But nevertheless, it's certainly fascinating that you're weaving this as well into the case of the contribution of uh, individuals of Indian descent, India, broadly South Asia, Indian civilization, India mean, not national, citizens of Indian descent um, contributing towards, I think what you're seeing more or less is Dharma traditions. uh, Mm Uh, on this on this um, landmass known as the New World. Let's dive into uh, the next two chapters that are, uh, I think, more to the point of focusing on the contribution towards modern American society and also fascinating in and of themselves because these are also two very different worlds. So one could, uh, chapter two could be a book on the road. Chapter three could be a book. It's fascinating. Um, in chapter three, you're talking about um, Indians and in Ayurveda uh, in in America.
1: Before, um, that, before that, I would like to also add to the fact that uh, how uh, the whole civil rights movement, uh, you know, before doctors started coming into America, or before IT professionals started coming into America, like my my own case again, uh, you know, even before that, uh, India uh, or Indian ideas or Indic ideas such as nonviolence, I think, contributed significantly. For example, in the civil rights movement, uh, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King and many of his colleagues and other African-American leaders actually visited India. They saw the residence of Mahatma Gandhi. They stayed for a number of days or even a number of weeks in Maharashtra and other parts of, of India to really experience non and other civil disobedience ideas that Gandhi and his colleagues practiced in India. And then they came back as African-American leaders visited India and came back to America. Then they incorporated those ideas into their own civil rights movement. So That's another feature of, you know, in terms of making of America, I think, you know, that, that itself, I think, is, an, is, a, is a another idea for an, another book uh, that can be really expanded and how those things happened and how this intermixing of ideas took place. Uh, even though Gandhi himself, uh, as we know, took that idea of civil disobedience from S.D. Thoreau. But then S.D. Thoreau in turn took some of the ideas from Bhagavad Gita and other, uh, you know, other Indic philosophical texts. So these ideas have been traveling for centuries from India to United States, back to India and from Gandhi back to the United States. So that's another uh, fascinating uh Connection that that India and the United States have long, even you know, uh, starting uh, from Columbus, of course, but even later, yes, yes certainly. <laughs>
0: and I was hoping to talk a little bit about that, about that um, towards the end of the interview. And I was going to ask you about the title "Dharma in America." So maybe this is a good point since you've already brought up some of these issues. What is this Dharma term? What do you mean by that, Dharma in America?
1: Yeah. So, like I alluded, so. Uh, Dharma in the sense of uh, the ideas such as non-violence, vegetarianism, Ayurveda, you know, some some of the healthcare ideas. Some of the dharma is a, the what the way I use in this book is is not just of course not just religious ideas but also civilizational ideas, cultural ideas, <clears throat> ideas that connect, that uh, that penetrate into even music. So many of the musical traditions uh, that were really popular in. 60s and 70s, when Ravi Shankar and Zakir Hussain and and his father, Allah Rakha, were very, like, they were huge celebrities. Hard to imagine now, you know, Indian classical musicians being so popular in in mainstream America. Uh, Like, there is a book on yoga from counterculture to pop culture. Uh, Similarly, there there was a similar, uh, you know, case can be made for Indian music, Indian classical music. So, it was not just uh, counterculture, but it was part of the pop culture back in 60s and 70s not anymore but but so those ideas of dharma i think even musical traditions i connect with, with dharma because many of the ways uh, ravi shankar played for example on stage he would uh, you know make sure that that indian music has this undertone or or even overtone of some of the dharmic ideas spirituality you know chanting and you know spiritual chantings and uh, and then that it is supposed to calm down one's whole being uh, as he was playing his sitar, as he used to play sitar. And so, uh, and similarly food ideas and Ayurveda, you know, it's all not just about physical well-being, but also mental and spiritual well-being, yoga and meditation. All of those are part of these, uh, you know, product term dharma that I employ in this book. And then many times as we uh, talk about these ideas, we, uh, some of us, at least I would, I do sometimes, is that, I tend to equate Dharma only with Hinduism, but we, we have to remember that, that Jainism has also been, uh, you know, long time. Right when Swami Vivekanand, the first Hindu to have come to North America, right with him, there was a Jain speaker, Jain scholar, lay scholar who came with Swami Vivekananda, uh, Virchand Gandhi. So Jainism has almost same history, you know, same span of history. Of existing in this country, so dharma is also, and Jains also use this term dharma. Of course, Buddhism also uses this term, so that's pretty widely known. But also, so history of Jainism also I bring into this path of dharma that I, I employ that term for, for, the you know for the for all the chapters of this book. So, so. Well,
0: I think we'll revisit this idea of this broader notion of dharma as you define it. We'll revisit idea towards the end of the interview, but let's let's maybe first focus on your findings uh, with the American medical community and we'll talk about that for a bit and then we'll move on and touch on the Indian classical music and your findings there. So tell us about Ayurveda and medicine and Indians in North Indian America. What, right. what were you surprised to discover?
1: Oh yeah, many, many things. That's a that's a good question. There are always pleasant surprises and maybe some unpleasant surprises also, but surprises nevertheless. So uh, Especially now that we are in the middle of this pandemic, and uh, you know almost every day on CNN, special, you know for example, we see Sanjay Gupta, uh, we see uh, Vivek Murthy also uh, for example on uh, a Trevor Noah's uh, show, and so some of the uh, Indian doctors have you know become face of popular American medical mainstream media, but. But in addition to those, even the of, of course, Deepak Chopra has almost become like a celebrity who is mentioned by American presidents when they visit India. So some of these doctors have taken, you know, captured the attention of mainstream American media. But in addition to these uh, big celebrity doctors uh, and leaders, but there, there have been also thousands and thousands of doctors that have been part of American medical system for now decades. Uh, we cannot use centuries here, but at least definitely decades. And uh, so I was, uh, I guess, unpleasantly surprised to figure out, to find out that just like, just as the early indentured laborers came to Caribbean countries, and they faced all kinds of, you know, uh, discrimination, persecution, and and whatnot. You know, many of them died on the ships, as as I'm sure you know, uh, uh, based on your diaspora studies expertise that. Similar, issue, similar issues were also faced by doctors when they started coming to America united states of, uh, specifically they were uh, targeted with all kinds of discrimination they would be given given lowly clerical kind of jobs uh, they would be forced to you know work in not so friendly conditions they would be forced to remain in some you know cheap rural kind of uh, un- Locations that were not preferred by by uh, by by white Americans, and so how they survived uh, early doctors, how they fought for equality. Even a term such as foreign doctor was very trouble was very uh, you know problematic for these early doctors because foreign doctor makes them remain foreign forever, foreign forever, foreigner forever. So they fought. Uh, they some of the Indian doctors they went to. Senate hearings, and they made sure that a term like foreign is replaced, at least by international, that even that was a big deal for them because international was accepted as a a bit more respectable term other than foreign, foreign means exotic. So so how they fought for that, how they created their own little organization with six or seven doctors to begin with somewhere in Michigan, I think Detroit, and how they expanded. And today... Indian American Doctors is the largest ethnic association in North America, where they organize uh, this community of doctors across the continent, how they do a lot of philanthropic work here, of course, here, but also in India, how they work with the United States government, Indian government, and keep raising such issues to to do with equality, but also philanthropic activities and so on. So that was all really pleasant. uh, some of the pleasant surprises also that how they have been now, uh, I think, moved away from the early issues of discrimination. Now, I think Indian doctors, I think, uh, uh, or even South Asian doctors, to you know, use a use a broader term, I think, are treated with with much more respect and acceptability. Uh, yesterday, I was watching you know one of the TV show, you know, again news shows. We're all locked down in our houses in this pandemic, so news have become more integral part of our life. And I was watching one of the shows and how one of the south asian doctors <clears throat> is uh, was interviewed by by mainstream news news shows and and how the doctor was credited with saving life of a of a of a lawmaker in in michigan so that that shows that you know uh, indian doctors have i think done a great job in in, uh, in serving the mainstream american communities and and uh, even in this pandemic uh, you know, Indian doctors uh, and, and, other, and all the doctors, and but also Indian doctors as part of the larger medical community have been at the forefront of fighting this uh, this uh, medical war. Um, then, so, then I'm, yeah. Um, no, you know what? You better continue that thought I'll hold my question, please. No. Yes. that's the uh, early part of that chapter uh, uh, where I start with the, this history of how. Uh, Indian doctors have contributed in making of America. Uh, and then I moved to, uh, from Indian doctors to Indian medical ideas. Uh, so the history of Ayurveda I, I trace. And again, that's uh, you know same struggle there in the initial part. Ayurveda actually continues its struggle even today. Even today it's uh, not treated uh, with on equal terms with allopathy for example. Uh, Ayurveda is still you know, relegated to this category of complementary and alternative medicine, I discovered on some of the uh, websites of uh, Washington D.C. Uh, federal government, National Institute of Health (NIH), where uh, Ayurveda is still painted in very negative terms, as if it's some kind of you know selling of selling snake oil or or, or whatnot. So, so the struggle still continues. But uh, I guess similar to what Indian doctors did. Or uh, other other stu- similar struggles in, in Caribbean countries, Ayurveda uh, practitioners have also did the same thing. They have formed their own organization, which ra- now runs into hundreds and hundreds. I think 700 or 800 Ayurveda practitioners are part of this national association called National Ayurvedic National Ayurvedic Medical Association (NAMA) and many many others now have come come upon uh, in this country Association of Ayurvedic Professionals of North America and, many more. So they are creating creating their own accreditation system, their own ways of certifying their practices by kind of peer review, rigorous peer review, and they help support each other. There have been some uh, monographs and edited volumes as well on these issues, uh, on uh, issues of Ayurveda and, and acceptance and, and uh, issues of equality and so on. So that I trace. And then for the first time, I think, uh, uh, I could... Uh, uh, Present, an, present a detailed interview with with one of the leading pioneers of bringing Ayurveda to this country, Dr. Vasant Lad. He lived in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, so I actually went to meet him. I stayed with uh, you know, you know in, in Albuquerque for a few days, and I interviewed. him and I present that entire interview, I think, for the first time as as part of a Diaspora Studies book uh, in our field. So I'm very happy to get that interview. Then uh, also, <coughs> speaking of my surprises, I'm voice here. I also uh, wasn't uh, was or pleasantly surprised to see that uh, you know, in the middle of Dallas, there are now dozens, over a dozen Ayurveda clinics, and even the suburb uh, where I live in Dallas, there are now already two Ayurveda clinics where. Uh, Indian American Ayurveda practitioners have been offering these Ayurveda uh, services for a long time here. And they are extremely popular. They are really flourishing here. And so uh, ideas such as massage uh, that comes from Ayurveda I, uh, and, and I, many other uh, solutions that Ayurveda offers, uh, offers are really accepted by mainstream Americans, which is, I think, heartening to know that people are now more open in trying these alternative therapies, alternative ideas to keep improving their physical, mental, and spiritual health. So let's so again see, we see this trend of early struggle and uh, and then kind of counterculture. I think still it's, I know that it's still part of the counterculture, it's not yet pop culture. Uh, Whereas yoga has now become part of the pop culture, not just a counterculture, not just, you know, uh, you know hidden feature, but Ayurveda still remains a counterculture. It's not just, not yet very part of the main pop culture, but I think it's getting there. It's getting there and becoming more and more popular. Uh, so so I, have a, a,
0: yeah. I have a question for you. Maybe this is a good time to ask it. Do you feel that the tension surrounding the, as you say, acceptance, quote-unquote, of Ayurveda, do you feel the tension, is it, a, is it the tension of, um, of, of Eurocentric paradigms versus Indic paradigms that I think is key to your, 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 um, your book? Or is it the tension between empirical paradigms versus more subtle or spiritual or holistic paradigms? So, otherwise put... Uh, would not would not the same uh, and this is a question for you right Would not the same tension apply to Western more holistic uh, for example naturopathic medicine There's a college of naturopathic ma- naturopathic medicine in, in Toronto I've known people who've gone through it and they're fine physicians um, mm-hmm. Can one not make the argument that that naturopathic medicine is an analog to Ayurveda for the reasons of empiricism and not the reasons of uh, cultural
1: centrism yeah, I think those are all really good points uh, raj <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> and uh, yeah I think part of the resistance in accepting Ayurveda is stemming from both I think uh, that uh, uh, treating anything that is uh, coming from the eastern Hemisphere, treating that as as an exotic thing, Uh, and also this uh, fear of uh, not losing the empirical paradigm and remaining stuck with this dichotomy of body and mind, which is part of the empirical paradigm, I think is part of the problem also, Uh, and not seeing the wholeness in different parts, but, you know, making sure that everything remains dichotomous, separate, disjoint, that's I think that's the that's how it, all these wars are derived. You know, war on climate change is separate from war on drugs. War on pandemic is separate from war on uh, equality. We, we we this part of the world I think we lose that uh, uh, we lose that holistic perspective that is so much needed. I think these days of climate change and pandemic and social inequality and racial inequality and whatnot. So I think. Slowly but surely, I think we'll get there. When we uh, even in this part of the world, we will see everything as a holistic, uh, in a holistic light, rather than you know keeping them separate. I think. Right. Do you think,
0: um, in your opinion, based on your research, particularly your your interviews with um, notable practitioners like Dr. Ladd and his, I think his student Win Werner, do you believe that Ayurveda can be uh, fully, properly, uh, robustly practiced in, in the West in America, or do you think there are limitations?
1: Great point also, and uh, one that I think every Ayurveda practitioner, I think, is thinking and, and, and wondering whether that, that day will ever come. I think some... Well, well, some, we'll draw, draw on uh, Wynne Werner's, your interview with Wynne oh, Werner. Yes, yes. yes. So yeah, Vin Wagner is uh, is uh, actually a colleague of Dr. Lad. He is kind of a manager or uh, administrator of his the entire this Ayurveda Institute that they have been running for now a couple of decades in Albuquerque. And uh, I think what I recall now is that uh, they say that some some parts of the Ayur, Ayurveda I think can be much e- are much easier to be integrated in. In the mainstream American medical practices, for example, uh, ideas that uh, that overlap with chiroprac- chiropractor kind of practices, massaging, uh, and uh, so various kinds of oil massages and so on, are much more easily available and, and can be practiced without you know without any liability issues. But some parts uh, where Ayurveda uses some um, some kind of medicines. That are I think still not not yet fully tested in America. So those are those they no longer practice those those practices or those medicines they they cannot prescribe in America because of less testing so far. <laughs> so, so those are the challenges, those are the bottlenecks. Mm-hmm. So um,
2: can you hear me? Yes. Life can be stressful even under normal circumstances, but 2020 has challenged even the most difficult times of life. You need stress relief that goes beyond quick fixes. That's Headspace. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So, whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. Overwhelmed? Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Headspace has wind-down sessions that members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. I've tried this. It's very easy to sign up for. They ask you a few questions. They design a program for you, and you get started. It's really that easy. Headspace is backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash nbn that's headspace.com nbn for a free one month trial with access to headspace's full library of meditations for every situation this is the best deal offered right now head over to headspace.com nbn today
0: mm-hmm. if i'm not mistaken uh there was uh, a thread in win warner's interview about the extent to which one Can't parse out how much of Dr. Ladd's training is uh, through his schooling and experience, and how much of it, how much, when he diagnoses somebody, and for those of you listening, Ayurveda, ancient Indian holistic uh, medicine, as much an art as it is a science, it seems to be the case, um, uh, relies upon pulse diagnosis, where where, where, a Vaidya, a A physician, an Ayurvedic physician, will take your pulse and then glean all kinds of insights about uh, your health, or lack thereof. I have found this fascinating, where Werner is saying, well, initially we failed to parse out, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, we failed to parse out the extent to which one can learn uh, to do that oneself, and the extent to which, according to Werner, um, one's insights are a function of one's advanced spiritual ability because of years and decades of practice. Do you see the do you see the sort of tension that I'm driving at here?
1: Yes, yes. So, uh, as part of my research, uh, while I was writing that chapter, a documentary was released based on life and contributions and practices by Dr. Vasant one of the pioneers of Ayurveda in this country. In that documentary, I was really fascinated to to find out. That he uh, still practices Ayurveda even in this country in a very traditional way, you know, without doing much fanfare and without you know going to media or but still sticking to the roots of Ayurveda and br- making sure to bring in many, many spiritual practices as he diagnoses his patients. So even in, in America and in India, he, he shuttles between you know, Pune and, and Albuquerque. Uh, Maharashtra and, and New Mexico, uh, and in which he uh, is not just doing, you know, usual diagnosis that many other doctors do. They, he also is is treating, you know, looking at a patient in a very spiritual or, or a very holistic way, you know, just to uh, in a very um, what should we say in a subconscious way he uh, he diagnoses his patients not just empirical ways. And that's the, that's what I think that uh, his colleague, Vin Werner makes sure to highlight that that Ayurveda is not just uh, empirical or uh, tangible ways of diagnosis or prognosis of a patient, but it goes well beyond that. It It's about, uh, you know, checking, just touching a patient's hand and checking his, his or her pulse and trying to figure out his entire spiritual well-being, his mental, psychological well-being just by noting the pulse. So well, that's a very interesting, and I think very interesting and very uh, traditional way of how Ayurveda has, have, has been practiced for thousands of years in India. And so it's it's interesting that he, Dr. Lad is ensuring that 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 is that skill, that ability, uh, that pulse reading, for example, is really transferred to the next generation of Ayurveda practitioners. And he has uh, empowered many of his students to to learn those techniques and, and making sure that that, that uh, many American Ayurvedic practitioners are, are also doing those things now, which is not just, so it's not just, you know, stuck uh, in India, but even in American Ayurveda, those things are being practiced. So, which of course raises interesting questions uh, coming to empirical paradigm that, you know, how, how far they can be accepted, how far they can be relied, but uh, as far as the patients are happy and satisfied, with these Ayurvedic practices, and it, it, it helps them. Uh, I think it'll uh, it'll take some more time, but uh, 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 but they they are still uh, sticking to keeping it as traditional as possible, even in the United States. Except the fact that those medicines, such as you know, some amount of mercury or lead should not be used at all in this part, in, in America because of the liability issues, even though in some medicines, some of those uh, elements were used in traditional Ayurveda in India. Those things are, are now left out. That's the, that's the uh, tightrope that they walk on as they bring out the market. So that's obviously a uh, fascinating
0: uh, Foyer perhaps into a subsequent study. Let's change gears a little bit and touch on um, uh, music. Uh, you, know, you know, tell me about this idea of Indian uh, ethnomusicology.
1: Talk about. Yes, that word itself, you know, raises some questions. As you know, that uh, in this part of the world, uh, everything that is, you know, coming from the east or from Africa or Asia is always ethno, right? So there's a music department, there's a school of music, but I think 99% of all music departments, colleges in this country uh, teach, or even K-12 schools, they teach only Western music, you know, uh, music that has roots in European traditions. Uh, Even though, uh, even though that now that uh, we have uh, some of the musical, for example, I was alluding to earlier. We were discussing earlier Ravi Shankar and Zakir Hussain. They were part of the mainstream pop culture musical industry in this part of the world. But they were they they never could uh, even today. They were they are not part of the mainstream musical education in this part of the world. Uh, so K12 music, for example, there's music uh, required music course in many many almost all schools in K12 in in America, but it, but even ethnomusic is not introduced uh, as part of the musical education. And same thing with colleges and, and universities. There is music, school of music, but then, but then there would be, I think out of 100 schools, 100 universities, there might be one university where some parts of Asian music or African music will be taught, but it will be part, called as ethnomusicology. That's what has happened to Indian music also, even with all the efforts that Shankar and San. Uh, put in for for decades, but so that's the I guess brief history of ethnomusicology. And so then,
0: just to give me a sense, give us a sense, I should say, those who are uh, collectively will be listening to this. Yeah. Just to give us a sense, if you could wave a wand, what do you hope would be the case? Do you feel that um, that um, music from a variety of cultures be taught? In, in in sort of um, public school or like what is it that you you wish would be otherwise?
1: Yeah, I I, I think I would love to see that. Uh, just like I think uh, some schools in uh, K twelve schools, for example, you know, some form of yoga or meditation have been introduced successfully. Some in some parts not so successfully. Uh, even ke- even keeping them. As secular as possible, but I think as long as students are exposed to different ideas that music is not just what comes from European countries, uh, but music is you know widespread phenomenon across the world. I think uh, at least some parts, some kind, some kind of world music should be introduced to to schools in schools, you know, early in, even in K twelve K twelve curricula, uh, and that's what. Uh, has has not yet has not yet happened to to the best of my knowledge, uh, so and so so in this in this chapter then I yeah I'm, again so we are talking about making of America or contributions to America, so in terms of music then I trace the history of Ravi Shankar his older brother and Zakir Hussain the tabla maestro and his father, and how they colla- collaborated with several celebrity musicians such as Yahudi Menuhin and many, many others and how they influenced the jazz scene and, and you know, pop culture, counterculture culture, starting from counterculture but even pop culture and how they became so popular. And so I trace all of that. Many, many musical institutions they established. Ali Akbar Khan, for example, the Sarod Maestro uh, established this school of music in California that is still running successfully and that still trains many Americans uh, to learn Indian music, Indian classical music, we are talking about, uh, and so and then, uh, but like Ayurveda, uh, Indian classical music has also so far remained a very, you know, marginalized uh, musical practice in 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 America. Not many people know that there can can be a successful career of becoming a professor of Indian classical music at some of the universities. We see very very less number of such professors even or scholars of. Indian musical uh, traditions. Uh, but so to, I guess, to counter that marginalization, what musical uh, listeners and musical practitioners have done is like in Ayurveda's case, they have formed their own association. So every metroplex, such as Dallas or New York or California, wherever big cities, wherever there are enough uh, people of South Asian Indian heritage, they form these association and organizations and then, and they invite uh, musical maestros from india periodically and so as they come here and they perform so you know parts of indian classical music remains popular at least in those niche areas and niche groups so that's a healthy sign that but but uh, uh, but i think uh, indian classical music has a even uh, more difficulty uh, for acceptance, even more than Ayurveda, because of I think dominance of Bollywood kind of music or popular music, uh, as we might call call it, uh, that remains more dominant even in among Indians of uh, in India and uh, Indians who who come here. So, so those are the challenges with the uh, with Indian classical music. Uh, and uh, well, again, it mm-hmm. seems there is a
0: a parallel, mm-hmm. an analog between. Mm-hmm. Um, How do I phrase this? So when you're looking at Ayurveda, there is the tension that you were talking about in your book in terms of uh, the presence of Indian thought, culture, uh, people um, in the West. And then there is this other tension that is more universal between mainstream, accepted, scientific, rational... uh, I'm just obviously creating crude tropes for the sake of argument, versus... Uh, the sort of marginalized holistic, um, less charted paradigms. And it seems that with uh, Indian classical music, again, you may well have the tension of well, you know, um, the cultural tension, but also there's a tension of uh, classical versus popular, right? And so um, there's that piece as well.
1: Yes. Do you
0: do you uh, I'm going to move on in a moment to to, to your chapter on Janes in America but what what do you, what do you hope to accomplish in in your discussion of Indian classical music in america? what is it that you are trying to show
1: a uh, similar uh, part there Raj that uh, you know like we like I mentioned that uh, you know students who are growing up uh, in this globalized and pluralized world of today should not remain so uh, uh, unidimensional that they think that only this way of medical practices is the only or right way or this kind of musical is. For example, I'll give you one more, I guess, specific example. Uh, my young, my son, is uh, he takes the percussion lessons and he will probably finish his entire K-12 education, uh, practicing only one form of percussion without even hearing the word tabla, tabla or pakhavaj or mridang. You know, amazing percussion instruments that come from South Asian heritage, all the way from Islamic heritage in India. And that is the, you know, of course, I will make sure that he will listen to those words or I will even show him some of those performances by maybe Zakir Hussain or Allaraka. But imagine the you know, kind of education that we are giving to our students, even in today's 21st century, when maybe 60% of students in, in my own public school here are, are of Asian heritage, and yet the school teachers, our school like curricula, are, have no clue of broadening their curricula or you know incorporating diversity. You know, such a buzzword <laughs> these days: diversity, in equity and inclusion. When it comes to curricula, there is no, you know, no, not even a sign of bringing any diverse elements into musical education, or, uh, or uh, again alluding to our previous chapter, uh, diversity in medical education. Still, those those foreign elements are are treated with so much skepticism, and you know they're exoticized, marginalized, and so on. So those, I think, it's an ongoing struggle. And And I guess.
0: I'm going to revisit this this this, this theme towards the uh, end of our interview about you know practical steps forwards because um, I have some one can make an argument uh, from multiple perspectives mm-hmm. about the nature about how to remedy this issue or the extent to which this is even an issue that you mm-hmm. raise. But hold that thought. Uh, let's just finish with the data of the book before we get too expensive in our in our exchange. So then chapter five, I mean, it's, it's, it's it, the book is fascinating for a number of reasons. One is that, um, you know, a musicologist would be super fascinated in a certain chapter, or somebody interested in Ayurveda or medicine would be super fascinated in a certain chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, Historians, sociologists—you um, mm-hmm. know, there's a, tons of folks who probably would 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 delight to see the the charting uh, of the Jain diaspora you do in chapter mm-hmm. five. Mm-hmm. Um, so, talk about that, but but preface your discussion mm-hmm. with uh, just a little bit of a, um, um, a context or a sense of, you know, you, I had the good fortune of, uh, well, first of all, I studied religions, mm-hmm. uh, but I had the good fortune of going to India on, on, a, on a fellowship from the international, um, uh, sort of my brain's a little foggy, I haven't slept much last night, <laughs> but the international I uh, like yes. what's yes. that? Yes, I yes, see yes, yes, the International School of Jain Studies, yeah. and I got to to witness uh, so much firsthand and, and learn from some great scholars uh, of Jainism. But as you and I well know, I mean, uh, you know, what what is Jainism, right? So so talk a little bit about uh, what Jainism is, what Jainism is in, in terms of, of, of within the context of Indian religion, and then... Maybe you can uh, unpack some of the, the the data you present in Chapter Five. Sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So yeah, that's a really you know question with uh, which is uh, uh, we can talk about talk for for many many hours. That you know what exactly is Hinduism or what exactly is Jainism and how do we if it, with...
0: if it or even just like the basic uh d- you know we teach in a very artificial formulaic way necessarily but it's not without utility so for example when you're introducing jainism in a world religion class for example mm-hmm. like what what is jainism compared to indian religion
1: so right, right so yeah exactly so uh, i guess to simplify for and to i guess also condense our time uh, Jain's, jain jain philosophy has been as you know is part of those so called uh, heterodox systems within Indian philosophy. So six are the orthodox, three are the heterodox. Astic and Nastic, right? So Jains, uh, Jainism has denied the existence of creator and preserver and destroyer God, so-called quote unquote God for for thousands of years. It's a non-theistic system, and yet it it is full of rituals and temples and chantings and bhajans and whatnot. Very interesting. Uh, so Jain, Jainism in that respect is very similar to Buddhism, non-theistic. But then again, in Buddhism also, we have all those rituals and temples and so on. So some parts of the Jain community uh, really takes pride that Jainism is has always been separate and distinct from Hinduism. and some, But some other Jains in the same community call themselves very proudly and very comfortably that they are also Hindus. <laughs> so there's this healthy tension within the community of Jains across the world. Uh, and uh, I guess I answered your question or there, or the tension or interplay with Hinduism? Yeah, I think,
0: I think there's enough there for folks to, mm. to sort of get a sense. The, the other the
1: one thing I'd say
0: that is crucial for, for the title of your book is that, you know, really all of the major world religions of Indic origin, so uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, um, they, they employ this, this word, word called uh, dharma,
2: right so so
0: dharma in america which can be variously uh translated as um righteousness ethics duty purpose um and so so in talking about uh you know dharma in many ways you're talking about a way of life that's predicated upon certain ethical precepts and uh, irrespective of what's happening now on the planet, certainly historically, or at least ideologically, um, Jainism has taken uh, these precepts to uh, 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 the nth degree in, in this discourse of, you know, um, himsa in particular, but such a himsa, asteya, brahmacharya. So this idea that 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 this, this tradition is very much um, quintessential to how we understand Dharma, right? Coming out of India, and so, so um, although it's a, a, a how
1: many how many genes are there in the world currently? Probably a
0: uh, better number than
1: I have. Um, I think that number would again be uh, sort of uh, fluid number because you know depends whom you ask. But I think in my estimation there must be at least hundred thousand genes in North America, uh, and in India I think uh, in total probably. That number would be somewhere around eight to ten millions in India. So overall, in the world, at least ten million Jains, I think, across the world, uh, mostly in, in India, of course, but also in Nepal, Thailand, Kenya, uh, United Kingdom—that is, England, Belgium—and uh, and North America. I could not say. So, I,
0: yeah, certainly relative to global numbers, uh, uh, certainly a minority religion.
1: Oh yeah, oh, and yeah. so
0: and that really contextualizes, I think, how interesting it is to have this in-depth play-by-play of the, uh, sort of the diasporic texture of this of this tradition right. in America. So, so maybe now talk about what you sort of map out in this chapter.
1: Yeah, so uh, right, so like you mentioned, so Jains and Jainism has been kind of a marginalized tradition or community. Even in our own South Asian studies field, so in diaspora studies, for example, I could not find any article or any you know major chapter where Jain history of Jains was traced from the beginning to the contemporary times. How Jains arrived, how they, what issues they faced, how they flourished, and now they at least hundred temples across North America they've built, and some of them are really magnificent, huge, huge temples that they've they've built. Uh, so as I was alluding in the beginning. Uh, We all, you know, Swami Vivekanand's name is, you know, pretty well known now across across North America, especially definitely in South Asian studies or diaspora studies. But the name of Virchand Gandhi is not so well known, I think, in in academic circles in diaspora studies or South Asian studies. So Virchand Gandhi had also come with Swami Vivekanand. Now, here itself is is an interesting phenomenon that I can share probably that Swami Vivekanand, even as a monk, even as a Hindu monk, could easily travel, fly, take a ship, and come to the United States and go to Europe and you know travel across the world, but Jain monks and nuns have such ultimate discipline or restrictions, one might call you know depending on whom you ask, that Jain monks and nuns cannot travel or would not travel willingly uh, on any vehicle. So when a Jain monk was invited to be part of the world first parliament of religion in Chicago in 1893, that Jain monk has to now select a lay person, Jain, lay Jain person who can represent the Jain community in this first parliament of religion. So, so that's how Vichan Gandhi was selected by a Jain monk and Virchand Gandhi comes with Vivekananda and he also gives several lectures in Chicago. He, he's also interviewed by New York Times uh, at that time. Uh, and that, that all I share in the beginning of that chapter. So that's marks the arrival of Jainism and, and, a, and, a, Jain, and a lay Jain person to North America. And then, as, as we discussed in the beginning a little bit, how uh, this idea of non-violence has been traveling all the way from Jainism and Buddhism, uh, and Hinduism also, uh, you know, non-violence is not just, you know, monopoly of Jainism or Jainism, but also in Hinduism and Buddhism. But, but most uh, remarkably, Mahatma Gandhi learned this idea of non-violence from a Jain guru, Srimad Rajchand, with whom he corresponded, uh, he exchanged letters for a number of years, at least six years, while Gandhi was in South Africa. And and Jain Guru was, was in Gujarat. And with that influence, with a strong influence of that Jain Guru, Mahatma Gandhi adopts this, these principles of nonviolence uh, and that changes his entire life and becomes a pillar of the Indian freedom struggle, as we all know. And, uh, and then Mahatma Gandhi uh, indirectly is transferring that idea of nonviolence as part of the civil rights movement, as we discussed in the beginning of this interview, in this podcast, and how, so, how that idea... Of nonviolence, civil dis- disobedience uh, contributed in the making of definitely the civil rights movement. So that I trace in that part of this, uh, in this chapter also. So Jains, Jainism, and Jainism's idea of non-violence through from through Mahatma Gandhi all the way to Dr. Martin Luther King uh, in the making of America. And then I sort of trace year by year how some of the earlier Jains uh, formed their own association like many other diaspora groups, like we already uh, uh, saw in the, in the case of music and, and doctors, how they formed their own association. Jains uh, did the same similar thing. So in early 80s, they formed their own uh, organization. But this is pretty different from how Hindus have been doing in this part of the world. Uh, Hindus remain sort of divided within Hindu community in several different Regional groups or caste groups or uh, or so on, but Jains did some something that they had never done uh, in India. They transcended all those subcastes and, and subgroups and regional groupings, and they formed a uh, Pan-American Jain Association called JAINA. Jaina, and that remains a uh, you know still a, a unique experiment by mm-hmm. Jains uh, only in North America, where Jains of all different uh, groups and regions and languages and, and sects have all come together and have formed this one umbrella group called J- Jaina and that how it has continued to successfully hold its biannual conventions, uh, how it keeps having these elections to replace its leadership, how even young Jains, uh, those of in 20s or, or even students, how they form their own a uh, separate uh, umbrella organization uh, or a subgroup within this uh, this umbrella organization. So all that history I trace and some of the early uh, examples of Jain leaders. How uh, how the first Gen temple in this country that's uh, kind of a pleasant surprise. First Gen temple in this country in this part of the world in this continent was found at a casino in Las Vegas. Uh, And when the British Raj uh, apparently sent a model of an Indian temple in some exhibition uh, in that, uh, I think it was early 19th century, and accidentally some Jains from California encountered this Jain temple at a casino. And immediately they did the fundraising and immediately bought the temple. And now it uh, is established, uh, ritually established, installed. As part of the Zen Center of Southern California near Los Angeles. So that's uh, you know re- little anecdotal information that I gathered during my research, and uh, also American jens uh, directly or indirectly influenced at least some Zen monks, at least a few, uh, at least around half a dozen, I, I think, up to this point, who actually broke away from their vows of being a monk or nun, and they. They did travel, even though I, in the beginning I said that they, they do not travel, but around half a dozen Jain ascetics have now at least broken some part of their, their ascetic vows and, and they have been coming to this country now for, for, for a number of years. And that was very welcome, you know, heartily accepted by Jains in America, even though Jains in India did not like that, that monks and nuns are breaking those vows. But here, North American Jains desperately needed that guidance, that counseling, that leadership, ascetic leadership that has been hallmark of of giants for centuries. So they uh, really welcomed these ascetics coming to, to America and how they took their blessings and that further cemented this new uh, association that they, they, they started back in the 80s. So that all that I, I trace in this chapter. Uh and and then some of the key achievements, accomplishments over decades, what all gens have been uh doing. Uh, again, many, many philanthropic activities, many, many new temples that have been built, uh uh and so on. Yeah. So 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 you basically in this book you
0: try and chart the Contribution mm-hmm. uh, of of uh, Hindu and Jain individuals and ideas, mm-hmm. music, medicine, right. and so forth. Right. So, let's maybe bring this full circle, and you could maybe share a little bit about your own personal story that you share in the book. But what is it? Mm-hmm. What difference in the world do you hope this book will make, or, or what you know what what trends do you hope to see? Um, as part of this awareness.
1: Um, Yeah, so I think um, it's interesting or or important to note that uh, how some ideas, some people, some communities, uh, even though they may have contributed in a significant way to improve our society, our world in their own humble ways, uh right but uh i think it's important to as as part of the team of researchers and scholars and students of different world cultures i think our little contribution is to bring those marginalized communities and contributions to forefront and to make sure that that uh, that nothing or no being should remain marginalized or become part of persecution or discrimination ever, uh, because as our societies are becoming increasingly diverse, I think it's important to to notice that everybody, every community makes some humble contribution in reshaping or improving whichever location that they choose as part of the global migration. Uh, And so more information or more, uh, more information about their contributions are no are, are shared among our students i think it's it's better for our global coexistence uh, right to it's better for our mutual understanding and it's simply better to know our neighbors so so to speak you know who who knows uh, how many neighborhoods uh, are already now populated by so many immigrants in this part of the world now and yet i think if our if our students do not learn about their neighborhood cultures in their K-12 schools or in their colleges, I think that dream of social cohesion will remain a dream, uh, and uh, especially during the times of disasters and uh, what is happening right now these days, I think those are the times when these values are really under strain. You mm. know, Crimes, crime, for example, criminal incidences in New York have really shot up in the last few weeks as our law and order situation becomes hopefully not worse. Uh, It is the minority communities that are, uh, that are, you know, that can be the first, that potentially can be first wave of victims. Uh, And if we do not take, you know, if we do not do our part in in making sure that, that uh, all of us really respect and understand each other well through education and through, and, and, and through these, such such efforts that we all make as part of our own research and publications. I hope so I answered your question. question.
0: Well, that's certainly a, a, a noble idea and, and lofty goal. You um, tell us what what next or currently are you working on?
1: Oh uh, yeah. Um, so um, now after this book, um, I guess uh, I was. Uh, I wanted to continue working on on more on on Jainism because uh, as I I noticed, I think it's still even though there are many, many books now on Jainism, but when I search for modern Jainism, there is still not a single book that comes up. Even if you search for modern Hinduism, modern Christianity, modern Buddhism even, there are many, many books but modern Jainism, not one. So I'm working on, on this new book on modern Jainism and some of the key issues, key leaders, and key figures that, are, that have shaped what we can probably call as modern Jainism in the last two centuries. That's my current project. That sounds
0: like another interesting uh, groundbreaking project. Mm, so we'll have you. to talk about that book we'll in future then. Yeah, sure. All right. Well, I think we've taken up enough of your time for today. Uh, so thank you very mm-hmm. much for the interview. Uh, And once again, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've been speaking with Dr. Pankaj Jain of the University of North Texas on his new book, Dharma in America. Uh, Until next time, uh, stay safe and keep reading. Take care.
1: Thanks, guys.